Yeah, I think with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump in. I'm going to go ahead and jump in uh, uh, because I love, I love what we've captured here, which is a paradox, which is we've seen this text do so much damage. And, I, and I've even experienced relational damage trying to live into the truth of this text. And at the same time, there, there's testimony. There's testimony about like the power of God to lead people into a life-giving, life-altering, grace-empowered and rejuvenating relationship that's actually based on what they understand about marriage from texts like this. Not just this one, but texts like this. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that chaos of, of experience, all the, all the angles? Before I, before I jump in, I'm just going to mention that I've been married for seven years. I have a... I have a thank you, JP. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I have a, I, I, Landon's four year, he's four years today, today's his birthday, and uh, yeah, happy birthday, oh, he's so shy, so shy, he's four today, and then Jackson is um, eight, the bowling ball with the face, he's eight months, he's eight months. So four year old, eight month old, I just wanted to make clear that I come in a little bit as an expert on marriage and parenting, so <laughs> you can trust me, you can trust me. Guys, today I, I want to talk about submission. Submission, submission, submission. It's a dirty word. I want to talk about submission. And I want to talk about submission as a kingdom ethic in our relationships in resurrected life. And I want to talk about submission as kingdom witness to an entitled world. Submission, submission, submission. See, the world chases a form of freedom and autonomy, wants freedom, chases freedom and finds death. But disciples chase submission, mutual submission to one another, and then submission uh, uh, coming to bear on certain relationships that we have. And paradoxically, we, we find freedom in submission. You try to avoid submission to find freedom and you won't find it. But God is invited into mutual submission with one another as an ethic and to discover on the back end freedom. You see, verse, verse 21, verse 21 is the main dish, the steak and potatoes of the whole passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul explores that main principle, that, that, that exhortation. He explores how that exhortation works itself out in three specific familial relationships. Submit to one another. And then he starts to explore what submission looks like in a few specific and, and, and important relational categories in their time. And this chapter isn't just coming on the back end of a much broader... Uh, it, it is actually coming on the back end of a much broader story. Ephesians 1 is about God's redemptive passion and His cosmic story from the beginning of time to save us. Ephesians 2 is about how humanity can move from death to life, from being an enemy of God to a friend and a son and a daughter of God, uh, by receiving sal the salvation of God by His grace through our faith. And Ephesians 3 talks about how that grace has the power to tear down the walls of hostility because we are being made into a new humanity 
made up of new people, new creations. Ephesians 4 exposes how that grace uh, uh, doesn't just tear down the wall of hostility to make possible this new humanity, but is actually now uh, empowering a diverse and uniquely gifted community to be this thing called the church. And the, the purpose of those unique gifts uh, and, di- and unique diversity spread across the community is for the sake of, of bringing the body into maturity and the fullness of Christ Jesus in the world. And Ephesians 5 explores how that grace works itself out in tangible ways in everyday holiness, like we talked about last week, and in everyday in, uh, tangible relationships with each other in the way of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And just a little preview for, for Keisha next week, Ephesians 6 talks about how if you want to do this with each other, if you want to actually let grace move from a conceptual reality to start working itself out in your body and in the ways you relate with each other, the devil's coming. If you try to relate with one another in this way, you will provoke him. And chapter 6 is all about how to actually equip you. God, God didn't just make a way for this, and God didn't just like think about how, how to actually make you a new person and a new community. He's actually equipped us for that battle already. So this isn't just an isolated text about submission. Paul is bringing us to see what this new grace empowered life actually looks like. Proclaiming that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and then putting flesh or, 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 or meaning or incarnation on what that means in some of their current relationships in that time, in that space. It's particularly three culturally critical domains. But what is submission? What is submission? Does it mean you just have to agree with, to, 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 ever, to whom you are ever in, to submitted to? Do you just have to agree with everything they say? You have to give up your will and just adopt their will. Uh, uh, you just have, you know, what, whatever. What does submission mean? What does it mean? A little over a year ago, I had a, I had a, I had a follow-up meeting with a potential microchurch leader who had, we, we didn't know super well, you know, a couple people knew of him, and he sent in a, a, one of the online start something forms to join the network as a microchurch. Many of you have gone through that process, uh, and it basically like, like somebody who has a dream, they feel like they're called by Jesus to do a thing, they want to start a new creative expression of the church in the world, they have no idea where to start, but that's, ex- that's like why we exist, we'll help you, we'll, we'll help you figure that out. Or people who like have something that already exists, but they, they are making mistakes, they need support or whatever, and so they, 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 they come for help in a community of empowered missionaries trying to be the church in the world. And so he sends us his form. The staff team is kind of sitting down reading it and looking at it. And, and part of that form is just asking, like, what do, you, what do you do? What are you called to? How's it work? You know, what does it look like? How is it going to embody worship and community and mission to really be an expression of the church? And what this guy wanted to, I think he just did, you know, what he wanted to do was actually... Um, help Christians think correctly about a certain political issue. And so, uh, you know, so, so on our end, this happens sometimes. On our end, we're just thinking, hey, he may very well be called to do that. That might be like just totally a good thing. It's just not what we do because we're trying to do mission to unreached people. So if you're just trying to work exclusively with Christians about kind of like an abstract, you know, theological training or something like that, it's just not quite like 
the church. It's not, it's not, it doesn't like fulfill the missionary nature and category of the church. So I schedule a follow-up meeting just to sit down and talk that out with him and just be like, hey, here's where we're at. And you may be, be very well called to, to do this. We're not saying you shouldn't do this. It just means that we're not a really good fit for you. And, and, or to see like if, if it didn't really come through on the form, what he's really trying to do. So I sit down with him and, and I've never met the guy, but he knows just a little bit about me. And I sit down with him, and I'm like, hey, nice to meet you, whatever. And he just starts the meeting by saying, I just felt like the Lord was stirring me to just tell you right off the bat that I'm completely submitted to your leadership. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, this, well, first of all, this has never happened before. It made me a little uncomfortable. Uh, but I just, I just said, man, I'm, I'm really grateful that you were honest about that and, and that you're listening to the Lord and... Uh, uh, so, so thanks for saying that, and you know, I just we just want to get to know you and hear your story. So we kind of start talking it out, and then I start mentioning like, hey, what we do is like, like we're really in the we're really just feeling called by Jesus to start expressions of the church, and the church is really geared toward partnering in the redemptive mission of God to see people brought from death to life, people who don't know Jesus to enter the kingdom of God. And it just seems like when we were reading your thing, you're really just trying to work with with people who are, are already believers just to think maybe a little bit differently about this particular issue. And so um, I'm not sure if, is that true? He said, yeah, that, that, that's definitely what I want to do. And, and, and I was just kind of asking some questions like, uh, do you, like do you, are you open to coaching or adjusting that at all? And he said, no, not really. And I said, you know, do you, do you, do you uh, uh, and then he started pushing on our kind of strategy. He was like, well, I'm still a microchurch. And we were like, well, uh, uh, I don't know, and you know, like it's like a theological belief about the church, and we don't really see where that's happening with you. And and he was like, "No, you guys are definitely wrong. You guys are definitely wrong. Like, I'm for sure in my church. Here's like what I'm doing, all this kind of stuff." And I was like, "Well, maybe you could just like adjust your strategy, like in just this particular way, like open it up a little bit." And he was like, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm definitely not going to do that. What I'm doing is like the right thing to do, and maybe you guys should shift like your how you understand." my church and me you know because I'm definitely it and you guys just need to like shift this kind of like cognitive thing and I just kept like offering a little and it was just like shut down offering a little bit and then shut down and offering a little bit and shut down and then at the end of the conversation I was just like hey man I don't mean to I don't I don't I don't I don't mean to be too harsh with this but at the beginning of the meeting you said something (laughs) there was something that happened and and there, I, you know, the reality is, it's like if you if you if you didn't hear for that from Jesus, then you don't have you don't have to be. But if you did hear that from Jesus, like this conversation isn't going super well. Like this isn't this isn't. I don't. I just want to like talk about that. Like, did you mean that? What did tell me more about that? You see, the the reality is, you can never be sure that you're actually in submission to someone until you disagree. You might think you're in submission to someone. And really want to be, and really believe you are, and have and like have like a whole system of, of of seeing that as valuable. But when you disagree, that's the test. That's the test. It's like, but are you? But are you? And if you're only ever in submission to the things you agree with, and you jump from thing to thing to thing that you agree with, when disagreement comes up, man, you've never been in submission. That's not submission. You see, submission or, or, or is, is, I'm not even going to talk about the Greek word, but it's, it's, I think the best connotation and translation is to yield, to yield. 
And there's an additional word uh, that, that doesn't quite fit in like language, but it is to withdraw. And I actually like that word if you think about it spatially. That, that in our, in our like broken self, like pre-grace, empowered, death to life with Jesus life, in, like, like in bondage to sin life, in every human relationship we have, the tendency is to have self at center of every relationship, every conversation, every leadership dynamic, whatever. Self is at center. And I actually like the spatial imagery of that word withdraw. To take self out of center, to withdraw self from the center of that relationship and to actually make room to center someone else or to center multiple people, to make more space, more room, to yield, to yield. And I think Paul in verse 21 is offering it as a transcendent relational ethic to be in every relationship you have. Uh, uh, among like the the community faith, like all the people in here, in in, in your in your mic churches and leadership domains, to to always walk in humility, to be humble, to come in low in every conversation, to open to be open to every voice, uh, uh, to to be a willing servant, considering others before and maybe even more often. Than yourself, and you, 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 in your own head, you're hearing other passages in the scripture echo that, right? Scream that to be submitted to one another in, rever- in reference for Christ. But at the same time, as, as submission being like a relational ethic that we can do with each other in a mutual way, there is this there is this thing called like unilateral submission when you're called to do a work or to be a part of a ministry that has leadership. If Jesus has called you to be a part of a ministry or to, or, to, or to do a certain thing and that thing that you step into has leadership over it, he's actually called you into submission of that leadership. And, and, you, and you remain in submission not because you really super unbelievably believe in these amazing leaders and they're crazy smart, and they're, but because you're in submission to Jesus, right? And he's called you to that thing and you can trust him and you can trust the leadership that he's put in. And not that these people are perfect, they're not going to be, but you can trust it. And when you come into disagreement in those spaces over what I would call like debatable matters, like, strat- like de- 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 debating around strategy or like, you know, how we should present a thing or whatever, or even, even, this is a little uncomfortable, even debatable theological matters, like not core issues, but you come into disagreement over like a debatable, debatable theological matter to be in submission to the leadership of the thing, the domain of ministry that God has called you into. And as a way to say yes to Jesus and, and to obey him, you'll actually submit to the, these leaders in your life. And you can do that. You can do that. Because you can trust that those leaders are also in submission to others and to Jesus. But you, you, I would actually be very leery about submitting yourself to leaders that are not submitted to anyone else. Because what qualifies you as a leader, like as a microchurch leader, just think about you. Think about me, 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 me. As a microchurch leader, I'm actually disqualified from receiving the submission of others if I am not myself in submission. So are you in submission? Do you hunger for submission? Do you love submission? Do you believe in submission? And I would be curious about the leaders that, that, that God has placed over you. I would be curious about what are they in submission to. I'd, I'd wonder. But you can trust that those leaders are in submission, not just to others, but to Jesus. And, 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 you can trust that they're actually also being called to account to live out the relational ethic of mutual submission. 
So even though you're called to be in submission to them because they're the leader over the domain in which you are, they, they, still, are, they still have to live out this, this transcendent exhortation from Paul, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that leader still has to be open to you. They have to withdraw themselves from every conversation and hear you, understand you, to sometimes yield to you. Because we're all actually called to that relational ethic. But Paul, immediately after he says verse 21, he immediately has to put flesh on what that means. Immediately. Because... uh, uh, Even the concept of calling all the members of a community or a household to submit to one another in that cultural moment and context would have been completely unheard of. So unheard of. He says verse 21, and they're like, what What are we talking about? What did you say? What's happening? What does that mean? What does it even mean? How do I do that? And he immediately turns to offer these three kind of culturally significant domains of how that works out. So let's talk just for a minute about submission in an ancient Near East marriage. Do you guys want to do that with me? Do you, can we go to like the, the, the I was going to avoid going to like seminary up in here, but you guys just asked questions that made me do it. So we're going to go there. Can we do that for a minute? We're going to go to like 601 level. Let's do that. Um, so ancient Near East like marriage submission, women would, would have been seen as in both, both in the culture surrounding the church, but also still within the church, women would have been seen as lesser beings sometimes even as, as commodity or property, uh, 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 they, they would have been under like a, even a little bit of a, a family asset because they would, sometimes would be bought and sold into certain marriages, so there's like finances attached to them. Uh, they would be seen often as impure uh, because the ceremony, especially in the church, because the ceremonial laws around impurity uh, 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 and, and then not just would they be seen as potentially impure, but they would actually also be seen as, as at risk of putting, making other people impure, a danger to people, putting them at risk of ceremonial uncleanness. Uh, they would have been uneducated. Uh, 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 it would, would not have been uncommon for women to be married in their teen years, and it wouldn't have been uncommon for men to be married in their 30s. Uh, uh, so you're looking at potential situations of uneducated uh, untrained, very little life experience, teenage women, uh, be, either knowing or actually not knowing at all, and having these kind of like arranged marriage situations with men who are trained, educated, life experience, and could even be, potentially be in their late 20s, 30s. The Christian community had already started to elevate the condition for women compared to the surrounding culture. So just like, just like Laura was mentioning, is this text progressive or not? It is, actually, it is. Uh, uh, and, and it comes on the back of, of cr- the Christian community elevating the position and status of women at great length. The, they were offering uh, rights to female slaves that previously were not, were not available to them. Uh, they had instructions about, about uh, the impermissibility of bodily punishment to women in marriages when uh, in the, the surrounding culture that was totally permissible. Um, they, they, women uh, gained some inheritance rights in the church. They had the right to initiate divorce, which they currently didn't, they previously didn't have, uh, and uh, more rights in court. So knowing that, knowing the cultural context in which Paul is speaking, when he says something like, wives should submit to their husbands in everything, they would be like, yeah, obviously, yes. But we re- receive that, and we're thinking, what is this backward junk? 
Paul's talking about? What are, what are we talking about here? But the women in that time, they'd be like, no, yes, obviously I should, I, I should definitely follow my husband because he, he knows, he's experienced, he has rights that I don't have, he has certain assets I don't have, like it will be better for me if I do this. Yes, totally agree. And that's why Paul actually only offers like a little bit of a sliver to this because it's like not actually debatable. Like I'm going to say this thing and it's not controversial at all. And then he spends a whole junk of time on, the, on husbands. He spends a long time on that because that is controversial what he says about husbands. To love your wife, to give yourself up for her, yield. That's what that sounds like. To give yourself up for her. To wash her and make her clean. Thinking about the cultural context of impurity and how women are understood, you wash her, you make her clean with the word. Ceremonial stuff and what that's done to the perspective of women, like, like you take responsibility for that, for how, how your wife sees herself, understands herself, you, you, and, and you, you break all that. You wash and, and make her clean. Treat her as your own body, as your own self. I mean, the guys in the room would be like, the, the women would be like, yes, yes. I believe in that, yes. And the guys would be like, what is this? What are we talking about? What are we talking about? I mean, the, the way and the, what this is speaking about women in that moment, in that time, how, this is, how the Word of God is actually coming and striking that cultural moment, that context. And then he adds a little bit of like theological foundation to that thing. He's, he's, he's almost saying, submit to one another in your marriage. Submit to one another. Wives, submit to everything your husband Husbands, give up your, like, like, give yourself up for her. Submit to one another. And the reason you do that, the reason you do that is because you are one flesh. He starts to, to talk about the original creation story. He, he, he's like, you are, you are one. And just as Christ is to the church, you are in union with each other. You are in union. You are one. So, of course, of course, do this. Well, how about submission in ancient Near East slavery? You, you, slaves were, were a part of most households except for the extremely poor. I mean, even people who were like just barely middle, middle class would still have house slaves. And they were usually paid exclusively in food and lodging, nothing more than that. Uh, and some slaves could be, could be happy members of their house and respected members of the house that they're a part of. And some slaves would be like abused, marginalized, seen as property, not seen as a human being, had the image of God trampled in them. Uh, uh, and, and in the same way, he starts to talk about slavery and get into slavery, and then he starts to root, not, he starts to push both sides toward what? Mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he roots that mutual submission in a theological reality. What does he say? He said, submit to one another because you share the same master. And he shows no favoritism. That would be so controversial. That'd be like unbelievably controversial for him to say that. So now we got to try to consider what this means for us. And we run into a question of hermeneutics, of interpretation. Within the same line of thought, the same overall line of thought, in the same text, we have one teaching that the church has largely accepted as culturally specific and not transcendently applied, that being slavery. You with me? And yet we have another command that we've decided is transcendently applied and not culturally specific. Marriage. Do we see this? In one line of thinking, one line of thought, 
we've seen, we see both of those things and actually switching how, how they are interpreted. It's a question of consistent hermeneutics. Consistent hermeneutics. So which is it? Some, some would read this overall text as a static, what's called a static hermeneutic. And what a static hermeneutic is, is a, is a literal and timelessly applied text. Uh, maybe a better way to say is what's delivered is God's ideal. What's given here is a timeless, uh, a transcendent exhortation. It is God's ideal, if you live this out. That would be a static hermeneutic. Uh, uh, but, and... and uh, so wives submit, to, submit in everything, and slaves really should obey their masters. That's a static hermeneutic. That's a consistently applied static hermeneutic. Now, the way that, peop, that people, and some of you in this room might actually, and I'm going to give a lot of grace and space here. We're okay. Some of you are uncomfortable right now. La, la, la. It's okay. Let's do this. Um, so the way that that can be applied is you hold a static hermeneutic, and you believe the, the way that marriage is presented here is God's ideal. And the, the whole passage being offered here is God's ideal. And the way that, that, that's, that the slavery section can be statically interpreted is because what's being, what's being said here about slaves and masters actually means employee-employer. Like the original language and the original context, it actually means employee-employer. So we can still statically apply that text to today. The problem is it's not, like those were, those were actual slaves <laughs> they, that, were, that were unjustly held as property and, and, and a lot of times unjustly compensated. Uh, uh, an alternative to a static hermeneutic is what's called a redemptive movement hermeneutic. A redemptive movement hermeneutic is where the Word of God is entering into a cultural moment and pushing the culture on a redemptive path with the intention of moving beyond even the static instructions being offered. So, so what I mean here is like what's being offered isn't actually God's ideal the instructions or the ex- exhortation being offered is not actually God's ideal, final plan. But what's, at, what's being offered uh, uh, is pushing the culture within what they, what they could possibly even understand on a path toward God's ideal. With the hope in the consultation of all of Scripture being carried that one day they, w- they might actually move beyond that static interpretation. Or, do you hear me? Do you follow me? I'm sorry we're going, we're just up here today. We're up here a little bit today. So listen, the, the church has almost, not, guys, we've got to be honest here, it's not, it's not like totally settled, but the church has like massively agreed to see slavery as a redemptive movement hermeneutic. Have we not? To say, to say look, it looks like a lot of places in the New Testament, Paul affirmed slavery, uh, we don't know what to do with that, and what we've decided is he was speaking to a cultural moment in which Paul couldn't even envision a world where slavery didn't exist. He couldn't even conceive of it in the same way that we couldn't envision a world without electricity. And so we offer what we hear from the Lord within the cultural moment that we know. But inside, inside Scripture, along with what he's pushing people toward a, toward a kingdom ethic and a redemptive movement, and hidden within the rest of Scripture is a consultation that offers the prophetic imagination to, to abolish slavery. And it did. At least here. And is still actually offering prophetic imagination to the to the dialogue. Now, so we there's like almost like a large scale agreement about the treatment of slavery 
Does the New Testament affirm slavery? No, I think it offers kingdom ethics within a slave system while providing the prophetic imagination to abolish it. Now, the, the hard question is, if Paul were here today, looking at your marriage and my marriage and all of our marriages, if Paul were here today and he's not looking at arranged marriages between uneducated teenagers and, and you know, educated 30-year-olds that, that have jobs, all this kind of stuff, and he's not looking at that, but he's looking at our marriages today, would, this, would he say the same thing? Would he say the same thing? That's the question. That's the hermeneutics. Ooh, we're there. Would he say the same thing? And if we can be honest, guys, I'm putting myself there too. Here we go. Just as often is the case that actually the woman is more spiritually mature in certain areas, like when you get married, more, more ready, more emotionally there, more like, like has, a, has, a, has a higher maturity in like mental, mental wellness, all this kind of stuff, skill development, education. We're not going to go there together? I'm going to go there. Here I am. Here I am. And listen, depending on the translation you read, so you see where we're going here. Depending on the translation you read, verse 21 might actually be moved up into the previous section to, to end point the previous section, like a closing thought to the previous section, not open this section. Because if it opens this section, totally cha- it totally changes how you see the whole thing. And tra- translating committees that might have more of like a, like a complementary and hierarchical understanding of marriage, are, like, they're just like, oh, this is, is going to cause us problems. Let's just move it up. Let's just move it up, you know. Uh, 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 but here we are. Here we are. And listen, full, full grace, full like love, full mutual submission and community. Listen, you, you and your marriage, you can, you can land on whatever theological underpinning and paradigm of your, of your marriage that, 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 you, that you see an integrity in Scripture and you feel like God is leading you to and you adopt that together, f- feel free. Feel so free. So free. That's not like a front door reality at the underground or something like that. Uh, uh, but we're studying a passage on marriage and I'm, I have the mic and so I have to tell you mine. Sorry. Um, so... <laughs> I believe in a, in a mutual submission view of marriage, but I also still believe that the husband, as the head, carries a unique weight of responsibility for the vitality of the family system, and will I actually have to answer to God for that vitality. That would be called soft patriarchy. No, no, soft egalitarianism, depending on who you're talking to. I believe that, that, that now... We, we, like, in that time, it actually was, like, the best thing possible for women to, like, fully obey, fully submit, and actually now, it's actually bad for men, for husbands. Guys, it's bad for me. If I, like, make my wife agree to everything that I want in areas that she's actually more qualified to make the decision. She's got the gifts and the discernment and, like, the way she's designed by God, she's just better built to, like, make that decision. It hurts me if I take that from her. Uh, uh, and so we try, to, we try to discern and dialogue and we try to listen to each other and we try to think who, who's, who's, who's maybe further along here and, and, and who should listen to who. And, and to be honest, I mean, uh, the, the, I, I, maybe I heard Michael Frost like two years ago. I think he said the best complementarian marriages he's seen and the best egalitarian marriages he's seen look the exact same. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to submit to one another in reverence of Christ Jesus. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to live that out every day. And they say, if it comes down to a big decision that we can't decide, I guess the, the husband will decide it. But you know how many times that decision happens? Maybe once in a lifetime because they keep just agreeing with each other because they love each other. 
It really is a beautiful, powerful vision of marriage. Let's both people listen to Jesus together, to discern together, to dialogue. And most of the time we're going to agree, but sometimes you're going to hear, sometimes the wife will hear from Jesus and the husband decides, I'm going to submit to that. Sometimes the husband hears from Jesus and the wife says, I want to submit to that. You know, I, I took an Old Testament class with the late Steve Hayner, who was the president of InterVarsity for many years and, and was such a loved president of InterVarsity. And uh, I took a quick, like, Old Testament class with him. And in the mornings, we'd get breakfast. And I just caught breakfast with him one time and just picking his brain. And uh, I didn't know him when he was, like, the president of InterVarsity. I wasn't on staff. But everybody in the room was on staff that long, and everybody was just goo-goo and gagaing about him. And I was like, I just don't know this guy. And they, everybody just loved him. And so I just sat down, and I was like, hey, could you just tell me about, like, when you left InterVarsity, what was going on in you and what was happening, you know, what, what kind of took you that direction? And he just said, look, there was a lot of stuff going on with me, but, like, a big piece of the puzzle was that his wife... Uh, uh, just stumbled into like a job in Atlanta that was like a like a kind of a dream job and she felt very called to do it and he just kind of heard from the Lord like it's her turn like she's been submitted to you for like a long time and I'm calling her to do a new thing and I'm asking it's it's her turn and he and it was a simple and over breakfast and I was just like my world and understanding of everything was just like broken and I was like what is this what is this okay listen Let's get out of the weeds. Single people in the room, you're like, could we just move on? Can we please move on? Here we go. Don't forget the main point of the whole passage. The main point of the whole passage is the regenerating grace of God received and working itself out in, our, in an embodied way in mutually submissive relationships. Submitting to one another. Yielding to one another. Listening to one another. Making space for one another. And the reason for an ethic of submission, which isn't, but if you try to explore it, is it's rooted in two realities, in reverence of Christ. I think that's two realities. Uh, so the people who find themselves easily submitting in, in, in relationships with other people, and the people who don't, who kind of find it difficult, I think the root of that is two realities. One, the adoption of a viewpoint of, the, I'm not perfect, I'm not perfect. You won't submit to others in marriage or parenting or life or work or, 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 or your, your microchurch or in ministry, you won't submit to others if you think you're perfect. If you think you're always right, your way is always right, your way is always best, you get it, you don't need anybody or anything. And at the same time, the other reality is that you won't carry a mutually submissive ethic in your relationships with other people if you forget that the Holy Spirit has actually embodied that, has actually indwelled in that person. And so at any, certain, at any point in time, they might actually be capable, no matter how much experience or, or education or whatever they might have, they, they have the capability to expose, teach, and sharpen you. Not because of them, but because the spirit of truth has actually indwelled them. And so that, that, that actually motivates our ethic to be open and to make space when in our relationships with each other, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And when we forget that the Spirit of God has actually indwelled this person, we might think, I, there's nothing I can learn from them. I'll only submit to like these two or three people over here who have a lot of training and education or whatever. But God might actually be trying to speak to you by His Spirit through people that you wouldn't otherwise usually submit to. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Maybe six months ago, Landon kind of, my at the time, three-and-a-half-year-old, he kind of turned a corner. Uh, and we've talked about this, so it's okay he's in the room. I asked him to sh- for, for permission, so... Um, <laughs> Maybe six months ago, he kind of turned a corner and he became very difficult to parent, like very difficult <laughs> to parent. So he's very, you know, he was very like strong-willed, like autonomy, independence, 
uh, knew everything. There's nothing you could tell me he didn't already know. Knew the best way to do everything. And it just like, like was causing total, total chaos. And I was on the phone call with one of my mentors and uh, just talking about something totally different. And at the front end of the conversation, you have a small talk. And so he's like, hey, how's you? How are you? How are you? How are you? And then like, how's your, how's your marriage? Blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, how's stuff going with the kids? And I just kind of said, man, Landon's just been really hard. And he said, tell me more about that. And I said, well, he just kind of turned a I don't know what happened. Like a light switch flipped. And he's just like been really difficult, autonomous, like, like really strong-willed, like bullheaded. You guys remember the story of Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament? Is a, it's a, in, in the Old Testament, there's a donkey that God actually speaks through to, to, to this guy, Balaam, right? So, so my mentor, who, who is so even-keeled, so like kind of, you know, low-key, he just said, if God can speak through Balaam's ass, he can teach you through anybody, including your toddlers. <laughs> said he can teach you through anybody, including your toddlers. And then he just let that sit with me for a second. And then he said... What is he trying to teach you? And I started to realize that I actually have to live out mutual submission, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not just in my marriage, not just in my, I have to work it out with my four-year-old. I have to withdraw and make space to understand and see and come in low with my four-year-old. I'm not actually entitled to hear nothing from my four-year-old. And actually, he was teaching me that I, I, I prefer control, command and control. And when he didn't have a personality, it was much easier for me. And, 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 actually, and actually, when you're trying to command and control your kids, you're not providing any leadership. They don't, you can't do both. And what he was wanting was leadership. Leadership. What he needed was leadership. And it's not what I was offering. It's not what I was offering. I needed to withdraw myself, to yield, to listen take myself out of the center of my relationship with him, to make room for him to submit to one another. With whom have you refused to yield? With whom have you refused to withdraw and open space? To whom do you refuse to submit? And I would, I would ask you to revere Christ again. And it's actually so much better for you. It's so much better for you. So much better for you. And better for them, of course. But I just fear of what we might miss out if we aren't actually mutually submissive with one another. The worship team would come up. I just have this one last kind of thought, idea. That submission isn't just a personal ethic. It's not just a personal ethic. Submission isn't just a leadership dynamic. The ministry that you're called to, that God has actually appointed leaders to lead. But I'm just saying submission is, a, is kingdom witness. Submission is, is radical kingdom announcement that Jesus is Lord that he reigns that he has authority and somehow the world knows that through our unity but that guys that unity is not possible without mutual submission discernment dialogue working with each other you see the world hates submission because it prefers freedom and personal autonomy but submission puts fences around our freedom our perceived freedom it shackles us to human beings, to people, to discerning community. The world chases a false form of freedom, and it eventually finds death. But disciples chase submission, and we find freedom. And you may think, you may perceive submission as restrictive or difficult or unfair, but in Jesus, you will find a man who was constantly in submission. 
Jesus was not foreign to this reality. He was constantly in submission to the Father. What you say, I will do. Always listening to you. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when that cost of submission was becoming too great, too much, he, said, he still said, but God, your will be done. Your will be done. Even when I disagree, even when, this, when I'm emotionally dealing with it a little bit, even, even in a space like this, God, still your will be done. If this is what you have for me, your will be done. He was a man constantly in submission. More submitted maybe than any other in history. And within submission, he was free. And it was for the sake of that true freedom that he set us free. Free from the sin that was binding us and telling us, giving us an illusion of true freedom. And yet setting us free from that lie of freedom, he now has won for us true freedom. But that freedom is in submission. It is in submission. That submission is not an invitation into something that's, that's, that's primarily arduous or hard, but it's actually an invitation into true and better life. Life that is truly life. And this radical way of relating to each other is just one more way that God is announcing to the world and the powers and principalities that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all the authority of heaven on earth has been entrusted to him, and he's actually, he's actually winning. He's doing victory laps. He's, he's installing a new heaven and a new earth that he's already purchased and won, and there's nothing they can do about it. So as we come to the table this morning, we come asking the question, to whom do I refuse to yield? And how quick am I actually to be in mutual submission to this community? Guys, if you've, if you've chosen a version of freedom that prevents you from being in mutual submission to community, guys, trade it today. Trade it today. That will ruin you. It will ruin you. It will ruin you. And at the same time, if you've been called into a ministry and you've, and you've struggled in the microchurch or the ministry that you're a part of, you've struggled to actually be in submission to the leadership that's placed over you, I just want you to hold on to that and confess it this morning. And to, and to be gra- grateful to God for the leadership that he's entrusted over you. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. come to the table remembering the grace of God that didn't stay like conceptual and distant but the grace of God that is now empowering and renewing your life every single aspect of it personally and in relationship walk away remembering the cost that was not that, 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 that was left no expense for you and the new life you're being invited into when you're ready the elements are given for you